0: like the Hollywood shit over here, huh? Action. Fancy. (laughs) Well, dude, we talked a lot Mm -hmm. offline and uh, we were just discussing injuries. As I was telling you, I was dropping buckets yesterday and messed up the old Achilles. So what's Mm -hmm. some words of wisdom that you've had from experiences with injuries?
1: I mean, you know, we talked about whether or not it might require surgery. The recovery is going to look similar. But, you know, injuries are part of the process. And in terms of being active, you know, I've had, you know, for those who may not know me, I've like uh, done well in powerlifting, bodybuilding. I've had quite a few injuries. I've had two cervical disc herniations. I've had two lumbar herniations, two more bulging discs in my lumbar, uh, partially torn muscle in both hips, uh, partially torn left pec, fully torn right pec that I had repaired by surgery. Uh, and then some other odds and ends like partially torn inductor and those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the process. Unfortunately, like, um, people will see, you know, my, my list of injuries. They'll be like, Oh, you're injury prone or you must not train right. And I'm like, no, no, this, this is what happens to everybody who trains hard at a really high level. Mm. The difference is most people don't talk about it because they don't want to hear criticism from people who've never been in the arena and to have them tell them how they did stuff wrong. Um, so it's just part of the process. I mean, look at golfers. I mean, look at Tiger Woods. Like, golf does not seem like an extremely you know, violent sport. But whenever you push anything to the limit and you're trying to squeeze every ounce of performance out of you can out of your body, you're going to get dinged up here and there. And partially because the line at which you can force more adaptation to get stronger or faster or whatever it is, is going to be right up against the same line of not recovering well enough, like you, you're always going to be. Once you get to a certain level, you're always going to be flirting with overtraining, and injury in order to make progress. And trying to walk that tightrope is what makes the difference. So, you know, when, when now when when things happen, or like like uh, six weeks ago, I was in Canada. And training had been going really, really well, but I've been traveling a lot, a little bit less sleep, and I was uh, deadlifting. I went to hit my second rep with 665, and I felt a pop in my adductor. And old Lane would have like tried to finish the workout, definitely would have finished the rep, you know. And uh, you know, you know, 41 year old Lane now, having been through some stuff, set it down, did some light stuff, just moved around, got it mobile, rested. And it was probably like a small partial tear, and now I'm fine. Like it's a little bit tender and sore, um, but I, I'm still back to lifting heavy, and it's not not impeding me. Do you believe in
0: like stem cells and like TRT, PRP, all the above?
1: I mean, it depends on for who. Like when it comes to TRT, I get people every time I post a Q and A. Are you on TRT? What kind of TRT are you on? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, (laughs) because, uh, and not because I have anything against it. If you're like clinically low testosterone, I mean, if TRT helps you, then, then by all means, but I think people have this idea that like you hit 30 and your body just falls apart, you know, and I'm 41. And every time I've had my testosterone checked from age 16 till now, it's the lowest it's ever been is 800. And the highest it's been is like almost 1100. So I don't need TRT, (laughs) you know, I naturally have a high testosterone, but part of that too is like. I tell people like,
0: I did see you pull vault in here.
1: (laughs) But I, you know, I took care of my body. Like growing up when I was in my twenties, going to college, like I, I mean, I had drinks and stuff, but like I never beat my body up with a bunch of drugs and alcohol. I would always get sleep. I trained hard. You know, I, I managed my stress about as well as you can for that period of time. And, uh, so I, I think that, you know, part of it's probably genetics, but part of it's also like just, you know, taking care of my body. And then as far as like stem cells and PRP, that stuff is really new and there's not a lot of research on it. Anecdotally, for some people, it seems to help a lot. For other people, it seems to do nothing. Um, so, you know, maybe helpful, but I mean, really what the research literature on, on pain management says is uh, building tissue resilience and um, managing load and intensity and exercise selection if you need to. So uh, I don't wanna get too far into this because I'm not like a pain expert, but Mm -hmm. I have read quite a few papers on this and talked to experts. We used to think about pain like um, your body was a bag of meat that was connected to your brain. And if you poke the bag, punch the bag, cut the bag, burn the bag, your brain goes owie, right? And now we know that's not how it works at all. just because you have tissue damage does not mean you'll have pain. And just because you have pain does not mean you have tissue damage. So there are uh, a few studies just to highlight this. Um, they've done MRIs of like people over age 40 mm-hmm. who have no back pain symptoms. Over half of them had herniated discs or bulge discs or disc abnormalities or degenerative disc disease, which, by the way, is a garbage can turn for just getting old, Okay. <laughs> Um, none of that stuff means that you'll actually have pain. Now, you can have a bulging disc that's pressing on a nerve acutely that will cause you lots of pain. But just because the disc is bulging does not mean you're going to have pain. So I think a lot of people, they'll get a bulge disc or a herniated disc or something and they'll go, well, that's it, I can't do anything anymore. No, I've had two herniated discs in my lower back. And that was before I set a world record squat in 2015 of 668 pounds, so I herniated two discs and still went and set a world record. Now, uh, have I dealt with back pain after that? Sure, like it flares up from time to time. But what we know about pain is, yes, you like if you cut if somebody cuts your arm off, there's a high likelihood that you'll have pain. But it also depends on what you're doing at the moment it happens. Okay, so for example, we know that some soldiers in battle don't even know they're shot. Until after the fact, if it's not a mortal wound or if it's not like a, like it doesn't like, you know, um, like break a hip bone or a pelvic bone or something like that, that's just like debilitating and takes them out of the fight. A lot of people, if they have a very high level of motivation for whatever task they're completing, you won't even know you're injured until afterwards. So, how does that work? Because you have tissue damage, but you're not having pain at the moment. And then we also know when it comes to managing pain, that you know some people will say well just totally stop training the research literature research literature actually suggests if it's like a partial tear or you know some kind of tweak or whatever that you should back off on the weight and intensity at least when it comes to resistance training back off on the weight and intensity but you're actually better off doing something even if it's very very light and then over time progressively increasing that to build tissue resilience and actually desensitize yourself to that pain So it's like exposure therapy. Have you heard of exposure therapy? So let's take an example of somebody who's afraid of spiders. Mm -hmm. All right, this is a different example, but we'll go with it. If you have a bad fear of spiders, and I put you in a room full of spiders, it's not going to desensitize you to that. It's going to make it worse, right? Like, Because it's going to be like a traumatic experience. That's like if you injure or if you had a lot of pain and you keep doing something that triggers that pain really heavily, right? Like you're just, you're, you're actually sensitizing yourself to that pain. But exposure therapy is, okay, you have a fear of spiders. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you in a room with one spider in a glass case that's on the other side of the room. And over time, we're going to move that case closer and closer and closer. And then once it's close, now we're going to take it back to the other side of the room and we're going to take the case off. And we're going to let you get used to that. And then gradually we bring it closer and closer and closer. And then over time, maybe you get to the point where you've got a bunch of spiders in a room and you're fine with it, you know, but that is ex- an example of exposure therapy. Now, when it comes to tissue, uh, let's take my adductor, for example. So the day afterwards, I was, I mean, pretty good, pretty decent pain, probably like a five or a six out of 10. Like it was not horrible, but it was, it was not great. Um, the next week, I still went in and did sumo deadlifts, which is what I what I had the issue with, but I did it with a high rack position, so cutting down my range of motion. I only worked up to 225, and I did it slowly, right? I did slow reps, and it felt very, like it wasn't in pain, but I could tell there was stuff going on, right? And then the next week, I worked up, I was actually able to work up to like 400 pounds in a lower rack position, okay? Still not a full deadlift. But like a, a, a lower rack position, still higher than a normal sumo deadlift and heavier. And then the next week, I was able to go up to like 520 pounds or something like that in a low rack position, about as low as I could get. And then the next week, I was able to do full range of motion, pause deadlifts. When A pause deadlift means you pause like after you break the floor, you pause about halfway up. Uh, and the reason I'm doing that is because it will still make it challenging, but I'm decreasing the load, right? I did that for a few weeks. And now last week I was back up to doing you know 600, 605 for four reps um, and felt pretty normal, right? That's over six weeks. Now, if I had kept beating on that thing, like if I'd come in the next week and be like, okay, well, I, I need to do 675 or something like that. you know, I probably would have really aggravated that pain and made it way worse. Uh, by the same token, if I hadn't done anything, it might have taken me longer to recover because I didn't build that tissue resilience. So I think when it comes to like dealing with pain and injuries, one, if you can do anything being mobile, like in your case, if you've ruptured an Achilles, there's not much you're going to be able to do for a few weeks. Like You are going to have to rest, right? Uh, or have surgery or, or whatever it is. But if it's just like a little tweak or something that's causing you discomfort do whatever you can that keeps your pain under like a, like a three or four out of 10, all right? So like right where like you can feel it, but it, it's not making it worse, okay? You may have to, you're going to have to probably modify load, modify intensity, meaning you're not going to go close to failure. You may have to modify range of motion, velocity, because velocity is part of what produces force, and you may have to modify exercise selection. So that's kind of your list of, of things that you can change. So find some variation of that that allows you to do something close to whatever the exercise you want to do is. And then just be slow and intentional with how you build up and build up based on tolerance. And the other thing with injuries is to realize that like setbacks are inevitable. Like as I'm working back up, I'm probably going to have a week where I don't feel so hot and I need to back off the weight. And that's fine. Right. But this idea that like, oh, you get injured and you're just done, like that's so it's so stupid. And it's actually like really damaging for people out there, especially when I hear people who are like, well, I stopped lifting weights because I have bulging discs and my back's screwed up. No, you, you can come back from that. Like it is possible to recover from that stuff. And so this mentality from orthopedics quite a bit of it unfortunately not all some are really adopting like our most current understanding of the science but some of this stuff is very damaging because you're basically i mean you talked about like victim mentality you're basically okaying victim mentality it's like well can't lift or i can't do anything because you know i'm broken you're not broken like unless you're you know unless your spinal cord is cut you're not broken yeah
0: yeah i think you bring up uh Great point because I think everyone's a little different. Pain tolerance is different, but I think you're also like kind of taking away your personal power as well of like, I mean, at least for me and guys, guys like you, for sure. Like we're so used to, I got this, the world's on my back. We're those Midwest guys, right? Like we got this shit, we can battle through injury, but over time it's just being smarter with it. Right. Um, And
1: I always tell people like run the marathon, Like don't try to sprint all the time. Mm -hmm. Like there's periods where you are going to have to sprint, but for the most part, you got to run the marathon. Mm -hmm. So don't let your ego and like short-term thinking screw you over in the long run. I always say like people, people sacrifice what they want most for what they want right now.
0: Let's talk about ego because I think you potentially crush a lot of people's ego with all of (laughs) your science. Um, And you know, you're here in Columbus. You just was visiting for the Arnold and- it's a lot, right? Like you got people coming up to you. Hey, Lane, what about diet Coke versus Coke? What about seed oils? What about liver and liver king? And this word that I don't even know how to pronounce. Uh, (laughs) So talk a little bit about, well, first off your experience at the Arnold, I'm obviously very biased. Columbus uh, represents 614. What have you noticed like differently at the Arnold and going to events here over the years?
1: Yeah, so- I I figured out that my first Arnold I ever went to was in two thousand three. So now it wasn't my twentieth Arnold because I didn't go every year, but it's definitely like my seventeenth or eighteenth, probably. Mm. Um, so I've been going. I've been going for twenty years, um, and in some ways, it, things have changed a lot. And in other ways, they haven't changed at all. You know, um, I was joking the other day. I'm like, you know, there's nothing really new in the fitness industry. A lot of ideas just get recycled. You know. Um, and so, uh, like, ectosterone or, or uh, pyruvate apparently is now popular. HMB is getting popular again. It's like, guys, this stuff was, was being talked about in 1999 when I was getting into lifting weights, like in the muscle magazines. Right? Like, this is not new stuff. Well, they now. Yeah, they just waited yeah. for all these people who used to be into fitness because the average lifespan in the fitness industry is like less than two years. So what happens is people come in, people go out, and then new people come in, so what they do is they just wait for the cycle to where people have forgotten about that stuff that was crap before and didn't work, and then they just you know bring it back like a zombie, you know So in some ways, things ha- the game plan hasn't changed you know for for uh, fitness industry, you know, scuzziness, unfortunately. Um, but other ways, it's really changed. you know I was walking around yesterday I'm like, man, I know how mom all- I know that I'm old now because most of these companies I don't recognize, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know the big the big players growing up are gone or they're in different spaces now um, so yeah it's it's not better or worse i will say the arnold is definitely less populated now than it was like 5 years ago or 6 years ago i think those expos kind of peaked in like 2016 2017 uh, and then I think COVID was a, a major, major, major hit to things. Uh, mm-hmm. I think people just got used to doing stuff from home, ordering stuff from home. They got used to interacting with people online. Um, and so the idea to like go and meet some people they look up to or, or whatever, and stand in line, like it just doesn't feel as appealing, I think. Uh, so hopefully it comes back uh, to what it was. We did. It did have a good turnout on Saturday. Saturday was good. Right. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a lot smaller than it was, you know, five, six years ago. And and what are you doing now?
0: Because you know, you have a lot going on in your personal life and your businesses and whatnot. But like what's a couple of things that you're very focused on right now in life and business?
1: Yeah, so I I have a few different companies that I either own a majority or a minority of. Um, so my main company that I've had for over 15 years now is uh, BioLane or BioLane LLC, and that just started out as like a single-member company that was just me for my coaching, right? For like liability and that kind of and business write-offs and that sort of thing. And now we have like a dozen coaches that are on our coaching team who I've we've either hand-picked them or we've trained them up on our methodology. Uh, and so we do a lot of one-on-one coaching. Like we worked with well over a thousand people last year. Um, We'll probably serve over fifteen hundred, or maybe even two thousand people this year. Um, so that's like one main business. Then we also have our like a we have a few different books that I've written. We have um, so that business. So BioLane, owns a majority of a of Outwork Nutrition, so our, our supplement company. And then uh, we're also going to have be launching. Uh, coursework called Physique Coaching Academy, uh, and that's uh, in combination with Dr. Bill Campbell at USF. And basically, when it comes to, like, uh, certifications, you have nutrition certifications and you have personal training certifications, but they don't really cross-pollinate. And in your nutrition certification, you end up learning a lot of stuff that you don't really use if your goal is just to help people lose fat and build muscle. And that's 95% of online coaches, you know, so Bill and I said, well, there's this gap in the marketplace. What if we synergize these two? What if we put together something that is just completely focused on people who want to improve body composition? You know, somebody comes to you and they're, they want to manage their kidney disease, like we're not the certification for you, right? Um, but if you're somebody who's interested in building muscle, burning fat, looking better, and you want to coach that, this is the certification you want because we're covering nutrition, Resistance training, aerobic exercise, and how all those three variables interact in, in terms of producing like better body composition. So that should launch in May, and I'm very excited about that.
0: That's um, awesome. That's that's getting uh, other trainers and and whatnot to be certified through you. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah.
1: That's and I and I really I think one of the things that I really liked um, you know during my coaching careers I mentored a lot of people who went on to become really good coaches like. Um, you know, uh, Paul Ravella, William Grazion. I worked with Alberto Nunez, Eric Helms. I mean, these are some pretty heavy hitters in the, in the nutrition coaching industry. Um, and so I don't want to say that like, Oh, I was the reason they were successful. They obviously went off and worked really, really hard and would have been successful anyway. But I felt like, you know, I was able to provide them some, some wisdom and that sort of thing. And, uh, so now I got being able to scale that because I can only reach so many people. But if I can help somebody get better knowledge and then they go out and reach a bunch of people, like that's a, a huge, you know, kind of uh, amplifying effect.
0: Yeah. Going from one on one with clients to being able to keep it simple but scalable is so key with business, right? And you've, I'm sure, learned that over the years. Oh, yeah. They're like social media, but coaching people one on one in a gym to then, you know, going digital to then, wait, let me be the ones. Let me be your coach's coach, right. essentially. Uh, I think that's, I mean, that's huge. That's and, that's a huge opportunity for.
1: And I think there's a lot of um, selling coach. I said, I've said, uh, I think the two easiest things to fake these days are being a great coach and being a successful entrepreneur. Are mm-hmm. I, I, an entrepreneur coach like that? Is I mean, that's like let me tell you how to scale your businesses ten x and do this. And uh, I'm like, I'm like, so what did you build? I'm I'm sorry, like I, now, not to I'm no disrespect. There are kind of you know ways to like learn how to do business without having done it yourself. But it's going to be really hard to convince me that you're going to be able to do something for my business if you've never experienced this yourself. You can know all the things to but what happens when I hit some kind of setback and you're my business coach if you've never hit a real setback yourself? Like, how do you manage that? So yeah, that, that's something I'm super excited about, a physique coaching academy, and then I and then we have our uh, uh, we have training templates called the Workout Builder on my website, as well as our research review reps. So that's a monthly subscription on our website. And um, our research review, we basically like I kind of identified that you know people ask me about these studies all the time, no but they don't they you, don't you don't get DMs about those, right? And I'm like, well, okay, so every month we're going to review five studies that are really popular. And we're going to break down, here's what they tested, here's how they tested it, here's what they found, and here's what we think it means for you, and we're going to tell you whether or not we we agree or disagree with the researchers' conclusions based on their own data. Okay. And we're going to do that in a way that's really palatable without a bunch of jargon that people, the average person can understand. And then we have our nutrition coaching app, Carbon Diet Coach, which is incredibly popular. It's been just enormously successful with basically no paid advertising. It's all been just promoting on social media, Uh, I mean, tens and tens of thousands of people use it. And um, we're just now getting going with actually implementing some like business systems and whatnot with that. So I'm really excited to see what that does as well. So people who aren't familiar, Carbon Diet Coach, uh, it looks kind of like a tracker when you open it up, but unlike a tracker, as you're progressing, our algorithm when you check in with your information is going to adjust your nutritional recommendations based on how you're progressing. Just like a nutrition coach would only, this only costs 10 bucks a month. So we really have tried to create products for people at every different income level uh, and across the span of demographics.
0: And for those that are not maybe aware what that is and or they are, you know, someone goes, well, what's different between that and MyFitnessPal?
1: Yeah, so MyFitnessPal, All it is is a tracker, right? Like it's all you can do is track. Now, when you put in your information, it'll give you some like really generic recommendations. But the difference is with Carbon, our algorithm. One, it was written by me, some or myself and a few other people, and between us, we've coached over like three thousand people successfully. Uh, You know, I have a PhD in nutritional sciences, so I have the academic background. I've done it myself because I've competed successfully in bodybuilding and powerlifting for two decades. Um, So for those that don't know, um, I won pro cards in natural bodybuilding. I've always competed drug-free. I've won a pro natural bodybuilding show. I moved to powerlifting, won two national, or sorry, three national titles now. Uh, Got a silver medal in 2015 open worlds. Set a world squat record back then. Got a gold medal in the squat, 668 pounds at 205-pound bodyweight class. And then this past year, I went to M1, Masters Worlds, won the, over, won the uh, won my division. So got a gold medal overall for total, got a gold medal for deadlift. Um, and that was after seven years of trying to come back from injuries. So I've, I've, I've applied it to myself. I've applied it to other people. And now I kind of put, my goal was to put that into an algorithm that could coach people, right? And so when you put your information in, it's not just giving you generic recommendations. It's taking your information and it's, you know, kind of looking at, all right, what do do we estimate this person's energy expenditure is, their lean mass? And so what is their goal in terms of fat loss, muscle building? Okay, that's how many calories we're going to give them. Here's their protein recommendations based on their lean mass and their goals. Here's their carbon fat recommendations based on their dietary preferences. Uh, we have all different dietary preferences. So, like, we have plant based, balanced, keto, low carb, low fat. Like, we're not pigeonholing people into one way of doing things. And then every week, you're checking in with the coach with your information that it requests. You're logging your food, checking in. And then it's going to adjust those to optimize your response so that you continue to progress towards your goals and push plateaus and those sorts of things. So very, very different than MyFitnessPal.
0: Yeah, that's insane. I was checking it out and I'm definitely going to sign up for it. But I think the key that you said earlier with the program that's coming out in May is Ooh. you've provided tools for people that may have a lot of knowledge and skill and, maybe a great brand already, but the key is like you're collapsing people's time, right? I stress that all the time. It's how how does someone learn from Lane that has all these accolades, has put in all this work, but you fucked up a lot of things too, which is great, right? It's like, hey, if you haven't, then either one, you're lying, or you haven't done anything or you haven't done it long yeah. enough. And I think that's one thing I'm recognizing even with myself, I'm very transparent with that I'm 28, about to be 29 into of the month. And it's look, a, a good market covers up a lot of mistakes with the mm. economy and investing and real estate and everything that, you know, I essentially do. And if you if you can't adapt or you haven't had a business, you know, get tweaked or or go under, or people you have to fire, and social media can cover up a lot of those, those mistakes as well. So I think what you said, oh yeah, there's a difference between understanding how to train people And how to be an entrepreneur. So, I think that's by far, at least for me, outside looking in, if someone's like, I wanna get to the next level, it's you're collapsing that time and saying, I've already done it, here you go.
1: For sure. I mean, like, basically, what we wanted to do was create the equivalent of like an associate's degree. So, we made this for people who wanna be really like authorities in body composition, but don't wanna go back to college to get a full fledged degree. And have to learn a bunch of stuff that, quite frankly, they don't necessarily need. Um, so, like you said, collapse that time. Here's what you really need. Um, and I really like what you said about people who haven't experienced it themselves. You know, they say when the tide goes out, you can tell who's been skinny dipping. You know, so you got a lot of people who claim that they're successful, do all this stuff, but they're leveraged up to the hilt. You know, they don't really have, you know, actual money. Uh, and they haven't really done anything. And I, I like what you said. A good economy covers up a lot of a lot of stuff, right? And the other thing I, I I say is like, people who are successful, they fail more often and more frequently, or sorry, they fail more times and more frequently than people who don't succeed. Because people who don't succeed usually just don't even step in the arena, you know. And uh, my friend Brian Callen, he's a comedian, and I like what he says about. Um, being a boxer is like, you could read about boxing. You could shadow box. You could take classes. You could hit the bag. You could do the, all the footwork work. You could get, I mean, you could have great knowledge. You could analyze fights, break them down. But if you step in the ring and you've never been punched in the face before, you, the first time you get punched in the face, like there's no way to emulate that. You can't, you have to be willing to get punched in the face. And I, when I say that's about business, training, whatever, uh, and I think one of the, my favorite lines I heard was, um, "Confidence, true confidence, is being willing to wade into uncertainty." And I, you know, I always say a lot of people, I think most people, if they know there's an outcome, they'll show up and work hard, right? Like they, okay, you're, if you do this, you get this paycheck. That's easy. Here's why entrepreneurship and chasing after your dreams is hard. You could do all the work and you, there's no guarantee. So you have to be willing to put the work in with absolutely no guarantee of an outcome. By the way, we were talking about this earlier. By the way, that is the minimum entry, okay, is hard work. Like I hear about people talk about, you got to work hard. I work so hard. Cool. Every, a lot of people work hard. You know what happens when they get punched in the face? A lot of people go, yep, this wasn't for me. I guess it just wasn't my thing. And it's like, well, if you quit after you got punched in the face and it definitely wasn't your thing, or you just weren't ready. Like I've taken a lot of punches in the face. I mean, hardest time period of my life in 2017, I was going through a very public divorce. Um, I was like... Not in a bad way financially in terms of like things were going to be fine overall, but when you go through a divorce, it's hard to have a lot of liquid cash because you're not supposed to do very much because you're dividing assets. And I had a company at the time uh, that kind of does what Carbon does now, except it was just a website. And I owned originally owned 50% of that company, and then my partner and I brought another person in, we each gave them 10%, and then those two people formed a relationship like a romantic relationship, and so when I was going through my stuff, um, we had gotten to the point where they were grossing about um, you know quarter million dollars a month, and uh, easily netting you know well over a hundred thousand dollars a month. The company was, and I you know I can't get inside their mindset, um, but I think they kind of looked at it as like, well we do the day to day work. We don't need Lane. We've already gotten you know, 25,000 members. And so I walked into a meeting one day that I thought was going to be a discussion about distributions. And there was an attorney sitting there and they said, you're out. And then you, know, you can't kick somebody out of equity. So what they did was raise their salaries to the point where there was no profits. And they, you know, they, then they sued me Claiming that my company BioLane, that I'd had for 10 years, that they exp- expressly said I could keep, was competing with them, and it wasn't a real lawsuit. It was to try and get me to take money my, less money than my shares worth because they knew that I could not generate a lot of cash at the time because it was all tied up in my divorce. And then they basically walked out of two different uh, I think it was two different uh, mediations. And and because they knew like, Hey, for them, it's not that much money. And Oh, by the way, I'm paying for 40% of their legal fees. Right. So here's the thing. I was getting punched in the face real hard. Right. I owed more money to attorneys than I could write a check for at the time. And I I, I say this sometimes I say, do what you, sometimes plans Like I get so many people talking about planning and I'm like, sometimes you just have to, can I curse? Fuck yeah. Sometimes you just have to fucking go. All right, you have to do what you can right now with what you got, where you're at, and you just have to fucking go, all right? And you may not know what that is, but let me tell you what, just start going because it's better than staying stationary. I think a lot of people, when they get punched, what do they do? They stay down, right? And one thing I found out about myself and I'm very proud of back then, is you back me up into a corner, I'm gonna come out fucking swinging, right? So and to generate uh, cash, I wrote my first book and I wrote it in eight weeks. I wrote a 300 page book in eight weeks. And the day we launched the pre-sale for the book, they walked out of the second mediation. We sold $50,000 of eBooks that day. And it gave me enough money to fight them for another month, kick their ass in a hearing, and then we ended up settling. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, if I had just let how I felt, you know, dictate how I acted, I would have martyred myself. I would have said, woe is me. None of that stuff is going to change my situation. Like I can feel sorry for myself. A bunch of other people can feel sorry for me. It is not going to change my situation. What's going to change my situation is bucking the fuck up and getting to work, and doing what I can right now with what I got. And it wasn't perfect. There was a lot of stumbles along the way. You know, Even launching the book, we had like a, a few different things. I'd never launched an ebook before. We worked it out. You know what I mean? And I think that's the thing. I think it uh, might've been General MacArthur or Patton or Eisenhower. I can't remember which general said it, or Admiral said it. But it was like, a per, uh, an imperfect plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan executed too late. And I, I kind of live by that.
0: Yeah, you gotta you gotta dive back in the fire, right? That's That's my mantra. It's coming back to like one of my origin stories of life is lost my father to a house fire. I lost my Ooh. first investment property to a fire. So it taught me about <sighs> insurance. It taught me about proper entity structure. It taught me about uh, turning your pain into purpose, right? I'm hopping around property to property and I'm like, oh, wait, these Airbnb things, you know, this is back in 2016. Mm. Oh, I think I can figure this out. Right. So it's, it's, you don't remember the things that probably went wrong in the launch of the ebook. You just remember, yo, I got to dive back in the fire. I got to start generating cash. I got to find a way to get this 50K so I can, I can get back on the horse. Right. But, Everything that you just said, it, it comes back to collapsing the time. Most entrepreneurs, most people, especially in your space, most of the time just don't understand the nuances of business. It sounded like you didn't know voting rights that you could get kicked out of your own company. Now, if you're in other business industries, right? People are like, oh yeah, I've, I've seen this before, but you, you've taken your entire life and time and putting it into understanding nutrition. And it's like a doctor, right? Like doctors most of the time don't understand investing at all, because they just devoted the last 20 years investing into the skill and the knowledge they know. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to taxes, investing, same with you, like entity structure, making sure operating agreements are in place where you're not getting screwed in by your own company that you built. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what's going to be incredible about the program you come out in May is sharing more of that. Because in reality, As you know, more than anyone, like ninety-five plus percent of the time, people should probably just like lift weights, drink some more water, and quit eating Taco Bell. And you're like, yeah, you probably hit your goals, right? Yeah. So,
1: I think everybody's like looking for the the hack. Like, what's the secret? And it's like, one of my favorite quotes is, "The magic you are looking for is in the work you are attempting to avoid." Like if you just went, I mean, most people drastically overestimate what they can do in 12 weeks, but they drastically underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Like if you just went, like I tell people this, like just commit if you are really passionate about something that you are never going to give up on it and you're going to go hard for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, if it doesn't look how you want it, then you're allowed to, to back out. Okay. But here's what's going to happen. You go hard for 10 years, you don't quit. Even if you don't get what you wanted, you probably get something pretty damn good. You know, and I I use this example all the time. So you you play ball. If I said to you, I want you to become the best three-point shooter you possibly can, but you can't get any formal coaching, but all you did was you went out every single day for three hours and shot three-pointers for 10 years. You probably won't go to the NBA, but I bet you'd be pretty damn good at shooting three pointers, right? Like, I think inherently we understand that, right? But then it's like, oh, what's the trick? What's the hack? It's like, okay, maybe there's some small things that you can do and some tweaks and whatnot. But for the most part, your, your paralysis by analysis is actually just pro- laziness manifesting as procrastination. And that's why I tell people, like, if you aren't willing to go, That's what, uh, like New Year's resolutions kind of get on my nerves a little bit. I understand they help some people, but like, I'm like, if you identify something is wrong and you are not willing to change it right now, like take the steps right now, then you probably don't actually care enough to change it.
0: Yeah. And the paralysis analysis, I've always said analysis paralysis. So I guess I have it backwards there. I mean, it works. Yeah. Yeah. You get it. Right. But that's it, right there. It's it's in entrepreneurship. You genuinely don't know the outcome, and I I believe most people shouldn't be entrepreneurs. But in 2023, there's so many ways that you can have a side hustle. You can leverage so many different things and tools that allow you. You can even kind
1: of like do um, kind of a hybrid where you're like an independent contractor working for different companies. You know, like where you're not tied down, but you kind of work your own structure.
0: Absolutely, you have a great nine to five, and you enjoy. Fitness, nutrition, or whatever it may be—I mean, dude, you can make Instagram reels, or TikToks, or YouTube's about something you love and you're passionate about, and shit that can make you uh, 10x more income than your nine-to-five, and it's not stressful at all.
1: You don't have to mean, care I, about. I. Whew, this is going to be controversial and probably you're not, not controversial. Received, not received well. You've never I, said anything. I like don't understand how people are unemployed for long periods of time. If you own a vehicle. There's this thing called Uber. Like, get the fuck up off your ass and go drive Uber. I'm, now, I'm not saying do that for a career, but like, do what it takes to get yourself going. Okay. And maybe you can do that for a career. I, but I've met so many people. Heck, I was in an Uber one time with a guy who like owned different businesses and properties and was pretty successful. And he was telling me about what he did. He's like, yeah, I just, I, my, my office is right by the airport. So every morning I pick somebody up on my way into work, drop them off the airport, adds like three, four minutes to my drive. And then every day I pick somebody up who's coming from the airport and I drop them off by wherever I live. Adds three, four minutes to my day. So I had about eight minutes max to my day. I get about, you know, 60, 70, or I get like 50, 60 bucks from it. And it pays for my car. Mm. And actually, like I pocket a little bit of it, right? So it's like, if that guy's willing to do that, and again, like I'm not saying that everybody should do that. I'm just saying like some people are willing to do what it takes and other people, I heard this great quote the other day. They want to emulate the end product. They don't want to emulate the process. And here's the thing. If you just try to emulate the end product, that's where you see these dudes who claim to be successful entrepreneurs who are leasing Maseratis and they're taking photos next to private planes that they don't actually fly in, right? And they're emulating the end product, but they're all going to fade because that's not sustainable. If you emulate the process, then maybe you'll wind up at the end product.
0: And I think now more than ever, we're seeing this at least I believe, and maybe it's just the people I'm around more and more every day is like people just want real, they want authentic and they want conversation, right? Trust me, I get on private jets. I have nice things. I'm all about it. But I also like that Midwest. I also like being in sweats and a hoodie, going to the grungy gym and two days later go, oh yeah, I'm down to go out to LA and have a couple podcast shows. And after two to three days, I'm like, yo, this Adrenochrome is not healing the Achilles. I got to get out of here. Um, (laughs) But what, what was it for you that kind of made you this way? Because, not, I mean, dude, most people obviously don't have that herniated disc and multiple uh, divorces and, you know, Target on your back and the, all these things that, that you have going on and the successes and quote unquote lessons that you've learned. People call them failures. I like to call them lessons. But what, what sparked this for you?
1: I got bullied a lot growing up got told I, you know, wouldn't do anything with my life, uh, that I was worthless. Mm-hmm. And it definitely started as, well, I'm going to fucking prove you wrong. Uh, and then it turned into, let's see what I'm really made of. Uh, and I just, I don't think I've hit my limit yet in terms of like being able to do stuff, like whatever it is. I mean, like academia, I got good grades in school. And let's see how far we can push this to a PhD, you know, publish in scientific journals entrepreneurship, let's see how far we can push this, you know, start four different companies. You know, I, I still think, you know, that some of these are going to blow up and be really big deals. And for me, I was talking about this with my team last night. Like we, I had, we had such a great weekend uh, with my team of coaches and my CEO, Samantha Katz, and then uh, our executive assistant, Caroline O'Dell, I always tell people, like, I'm, everybody says, assumes that I'm like a really regimented, perfectionist, OCD person. I'm like, I'm not. I spreadsheets drive me crazy. I'm an ideas guy, right? Like, I'm an ideas guy and I can talk, right? I I think I do a good job at leading people and inspiring, but I'm not a structure person, which is why I have very systematic structure business people to do that, right? Because I know what I'm good at, I know what I'm not good at, and what's a, not a waste of my time, but not a good use of my time. Right. So, how far can we push that? And I said to them, you know, I like money as much as Nest Person. I, I'm not going to pretend I don't like money. I'd love to have a boatload of money. But to me, that takes care of itself if we serve a lot of people. Like, if we reach a lot of people, we serve a lot of people, we continue to improve people's lives, that stuff's all going to take care of itself. If we start chasing money, then we're going to do things that we don't like, that we're not in alignment with our values. And at the end of the day, I'd rather make less money and do stuff that's in alignment with my values than the other way around. So how far can we push that? And then like, I've just getting into doing, you know, obviously I've done nutritional speaking. I'm getting into more motivational speaking and like just seeing what I've done, like in the first few times of doing, it, I'm like, I said, one day I'm going to sell at an arena. You know, that, that probably sounds really cocky, but I'm just confident because when I've set goals and I've really said I'm going to do this, I do it. You know, like it's it's I think lifting weights taught me so much because it's a microcosm of life because you are going to have setbacks, you're going to have frustrations, you're going to have times where things don't go right. You know, and you learn to work through those and see, oh wow, I was so frustrated with this. I felt like I was at my limit, and I kept going. And look what I did! Like I can still remember a great lesson I learned early on. Was uh, I had very skinny legs when I first got into lifting, and even after four years of training really hard, I still had really skinny legs. In fact, uh, when I'd post my pictures on the Bodybuilding.com forums, which is how kind of I got my start in like social media. This was social media before social media was social media. Every time I would get people like, Do you even train them? You pussy, you know, you don't even do squats. And meanwhile, I was training really, really hard. They just genetically weren't great. I have very long femurs, you know, I, I like, it takes a lot of time for me to put mass on my legs. And I can remember like maybe 2005 or six thinking to myself, Maybe this just isn't for me. Maybe I'll never, you know, do it. And I had this idea. I said, You know what? I'm going to train hard for 10 years. I'm going to go hard for 10 years on my legs, like absolutely empty the tank. And if at the end of that 10 years uh, they're still terrible, then I'll, I'll allow myself to bow out of bodybuilding or you know whatever, you know iron sports. And I also said, you know what? There may be somebody who squats 500 pounds for reps who has small legs, but I haven't met him yet. So I'm going to squat 500 pounds for reps, right? And in 2010, I was getting ready for my first pro shows and I was posing for one of the organization's judges. Uh, and I, I kind of commented, I said, You know, uh, I know my legs are a weak point. So when I do this, I like pose this way to kind of hide them. And she goes, She looked at me and goes, Lane, your, your legs aren't a weak point. They're, they're you're never going to have the best legs on stage, but they're in line with the rest of your physique. And it was like, that was like 11 years of work to get to that point how many people would have quit? And then in 2015, when I set that world squat record, one of my favorite moments of all, comp- of all my competitions, my coach at the time, Ben Escrow, he was actually somebody I coached in bodybuilding and he followed me on the message boards. He, and uh, then he became my coach later because he's a brilliant programmer. Um, I set that world record, like I said, and that was after going through like multiple disc herniations and all this stuff. And I got done with drug testing, came backstage. He was still sitting in the same place and he was crying. I was like, dude, what, what's up, man? We did it. He goes, how the fuck did you just do that? I was like, what do you mean, man? Like, that's what we trained for. He's like, you were the kid with skinny legs that everybody fucking made fun of on bodybuilding.com and you just went out and set a world record in the biggest powerlifting meet in history, which at, not now, but at the time it was. And I just remembered thinking it was the work. Like it was the work. Like uh, like when I went out to take that third squat, I knew I was going to hit it. There was not a single doubt in my mind. I knew I was going to hit it or I was going to die under that barbell, you know? But like having been through so many setbacks and really having, I've always said, I'm so grateful that it was so hard for me to make progress with my legs because once I got to that point, man, it was so rewarding and I appreciated it so much more. Like God forbid you got everything you ever wanted easy. Like talk about an unfulfilling life. Like I think one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older is like when I'm going through hard times or things that are stressful or difficult, it's never fun, but I've learned to kind of step back from it and say, "I'm going to get something out of this. Really valuable. It's going to teach me something really valuable. And I can honestly say that all the best stuff in my life has come out of things that were the worst. Like all the best shit in my life came out of the worst shit. So when it happens, I'm not, I'm not saying like I seek out like problems, you know, but when it happens, I just kind of step back and say, I know I'm going to get something from this. And I think the biggest thing I'll, I would have people take away is, you are going to have days where you feel down and you don't feel like doing the things you need to do. Do not let your feelings, do not let short-term feelings impact long-term decision-making. Make decisions based on your principles and values. And I've fucked this up too, okay? There's been like one time in my life, I had an affair, which is why I had my first divorce. Um, That was the one time in my life I made decisions not based on my value system and not based on my principles. And it almost destroyed me in terms of like, um, I was, I could not say that I was the person I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Like it was, like I always say, it's like looking into a broken mirror is the best way I could describe it. You know, it took me a long time. I wouldn't, like, I still struggle with it sometimes, um, but it taught me a lot. And it taught me like, I'll never do that again or go against my values or principles for something that's a short-term sort of thing because of how it made me feel about myself, right? And the biggest thing is you make big decisions based on your principles and values. You don't make them based on feelings because your feelings will lie to you. They will lie to you. They will lead you astray And it's I learned this from the gym. Like I go into the gym and some days I don't feel like it. Mm. And I still show up. Why? Because I know overall I love training. Now I'll go through days where I don't love training. I'll go through weeks where I don't love training. I'll even go through months where I don't love training. But overall, my principles are I know I love training and I know it will come back. Right? So I don't make those short term, I don't make decisions based on feelings. At least not anymore.
0: Yeah, probably a, horrible example to give, but this is one thing that really stuck with me with one of my buddies that was an ex- addict and now he's absolutely crushing it. he had like a nine figure exit. he's wow he's gonna probably build like a billion dollar company at this pace that he's at with the, these new things he has going on. but one thing he said about feelings that really stuck with me is, is hey Tyler, heroin made me feel great. There's nothing in the world that's ever made me feel as good as heroin but it doesn't align with my values, my principles. It doesn't mean that it's good for me. And a lot of us do things that make us feel good, but it's not the right thing to do. Not the right thing to do at all.
1: And I think that I always say there's like a great dichotomy of life. That is whatever makes it easier in the short term is going to make it harder in the long term. And typically whatever makes it harder in the short term actually makes it easier in the long term. I think Les Brown has a quote. He said, if you do what is easy, your life will be hard. If you do what is hard, your life will be rewarding. Like My friend, John Deloney, he has a very good mental health podcast. He said, seek out and do difficult things, do them, because it will teach you so much and will teach you how to handle difficult things. David Goggins said this. He said, I don't, I'm not training to run a marathon, I'm training for life. So when I get a phone call at 3 a.m. and they say, your mom is sick or your mom's dead or, or something terrible, I don't fall apart. You know, like, well, you fall apart, but like you can put yourself back together, right? If you've never exposed yourself to discomfort, how do you know how to handle that? Now, I, and I've met so many people who were, again, I'll use the example, like, um, uh, growing up in high school. Like I got good grades in college. I, I, I've, People consider me, you know, I've had people tell me, I was on Ed Milet's podcast and when we were uh, chatting beforehand, he's like, you know, you walk into a room and you're the smartest guy in the room. And I just remember thinking like, high school was hard for me. Like it was hard for me. Like I got, a, I got a three five, I got an A average, but I had to study a lot. And I had to study like quite a bit more than my peers who were getting like straight A's. And I just remember thinking like, why is this so hard for me? And then I went to college and you know what happened? I already had good study habits because it was hard for me already, because I was in discomfort already. And all those kids who got straight A's, who didn't have to study, now they were having a really hard time because they had never been in discomfort. And their first time experiencing it, a lot of them folded. And so when I got to grad school, I got even better grades. And, my, and when I ran up against you know, obstacles in my research, I was able to work through it. Like my PhD is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, but I think a lot of that was built. I was grateful that things weren't didn't come easy to me early on. Like, the, I think the worst thing that can happen for somebody is for things to go really, really well early. I think that's one of the worst things that can happen because then they get the idea that like, oh, this is normal. This is what it's going to be like. I think uh, my uncle, or sorry, he's actually my godfather. We called him Uncle Steve, but he was the vice president of Mead Johnson for like over a decade. And... I was asking about, um, he was talking about hiring people. And man, I wish I would have like really ingested this and understood it at the time. He said, when I hire somebody, I actually try to get them to have a small failure really early on. So, and small enough to where they learn from it and they grow from it, but it doesn't destroy their confidence. He said, cause I don't want them the first time they fail for it to be massive and just completely obliterate their confidence. Or it'll be the difference of being proactive,
0: where they don't even try anything to try to be proactive to grow the business or take things. Let's use Caroline, for example, right? Like I DM'd you, hey, got to get you on the show. You said "Message, message my team message your team. She's proactive and saying, "Okay, well, his flights around this time, let's schedule this day right after the Arnold boom boom boom." Being proactive versus coming to you, if she schedules the wrong time, the wrong day, and now now you can't rely on them to do anything. It's like more work. So, it's way better as an entrepreneur for your people and for employees working for entrepreneurs to know we would much rather prefer for you to be proactive and screw a bunch of things up because nine times out of 10, it's either one, you weren't trained correctly or two, great, you're being proactive. You're, you actually care to get things done. And we just have to go back and make sure that this is not reoccurring habits. We have to just make sure that you now know the systems and processes and the right way to do this moving forward. Um, but really what you're saying, I can always tell whether we're talking about a legitimate investment strategy or speaking to someone that views life as an investment, right? Coming back to the Les Brown quote of, if you do things that are easy, life will be hard. If you do things that are hard, life will be rewarding. And and that's coming into like training as well, right? You've built the foundation year after year. You've put in the time and energy, getting a PhD and doing research day in and day out. So you are an investor, right? You are an investor. Share a little bit about what you are doing with, uh, you know, your capital now in terms of like, where, where are you focusing, you know, your actual money and where is that going? Your businesses, do you have like a, something that you're planning on long term? Uh, Obviously it doesn't have to be like exact dollar, this and that, but just 30,000 foot view.
1: Yeah. So I think my plan over the next five to 10 years is really to reinvest a lot of the money into the businesses that I have. Um, it's kind of a gamble because it's betting on yourself, but I really do believe that we've got the special sauce to, to blow this thing up and I will still invest in mutual funds. Like I still take, you know, my plan is I'll take 20% of my take home pay, put it in retirement, whatever's left over, put it in good mutual funds, pretty boring stuff to be honest. Um, I plan to get into real estate in the future. Uh, but I really, I have a rule which is, um, I don't invest in things until I really, really understand them. Uh, but I do think that like the money is going to be best spent in the area where I know it best, right? So, and, and you see this. Um, I read a book uh, called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Um, and he said, when companies try to invest in or try to get into things that they think are just going to be money makers, but it's not in their wheelhouse, it bites them. So he gives the example of, and this book was all very data-driven. It was basically a study uh, that he turned into a book. But he used the example of R.J. Reynolds versus Marlboro, the tobacco companies. When the, when the new government regulations came down, these tobacco companies were very concerned because, I mean, this was going to crush a lot of their business. And you can argue about the, the ethics of that and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm not touching that. Um, my point is like how these businesses responded. So RJ Reynolds started investing in things like steel and oil moneymakers. Marlowe doubled down on what they knew. And at the time, RJ Reynolds had a much bigger market share, much bigger market share. So Marblow focused on their international market and they focused on like, uh, they've invested in alcohol companies, um, uh, like sweets. Like, so like, you know, sinful things, but, but things that they already knew, like they already knew the, that, that playground, right? And they, they uh, he referred, Jim Collins referred to this as the hedgehog, which is um, a hedgehog is really hard to kill. Like you put a, a fox is way more diverse, way more agile, but he has a really hard time killing a hedgehog. Why? Because a hedgehog does one thing, it curls up, and it's basically you can't get it right so businesses need to know their hedgehog where are they where do they have a knack for it so a natural talent they generate revenue and they know it well that's the marketplace they need to focus on and double down in that and that's what we're doing and so many times you know we've had uh, people in our companies who have said well, we should do this thing, and I'm like, no, we're not touching that. That's not our hedgehog. That's not. That's not our wheelhouse. Why? Why am I? I'm gonna have to learn that, right? Or um, like, uh, we have a partnership uh, for the for the coaching courses. This company in Australia called Clean Health. They digitize all our stuff. They they deal with the accreditation process, all that stuff, right? And uh, somebody who's in our company was like why don't we just do that all ourselves so we don't have to give them a percentage? And what they were asking for was incredibly reasonable. And I said, I know nothing about accreditation. Do you know how much time and energy and money we are going to waste trying to find the right people to do this? Whereas we have something tried and true. This is our hedgehog, the content. Let's let them do their hedgehog. We work well together because we already had some short courses with them. I know we work well together. Why am I going to touch that? It's not a good product. It's not a good use of my time. It's not a good use of the money. Right. So I think that's the, that's one of the biggest things I focus on is what what am I good at? You know, and I'm like, uh, when it came to crypto, and I know you invest in crypto, and I'm not saying anything negative about crypto overall, but I had people trying to get me to invest in it. I said, you know, I just don't understand it. You know, and maybe at some point I'll understand it and I'll feel comfortable investing in it, but I'm just not going to put money into it if I don't understand it. Right, And I think too many people just jump on the latest thing and that, listen, there is no investment out there that just makes money hand over fist, time after time. It doesn't work that way. Markets go up and down, right? Um, so I know for us, like, yeah, the, and the fitness market goes up and down. But I know for us, if we continue to execute on our values and our systems and the way we've been doing things, we'll be fine, right? So I'm, I'm really taking you know, most of the money that we're earning and putting it back into the companies. Um, And so I'm very excited about the next five to 10 years.
0: Well, Lane, this crypto market's different. Okay. (laughs) This this one's different. This one's different. No, we were even talking offline about this too. Like I call it anchors in life. Most of the time, uh, at least speaking for myself. And I believe I genuinely believe this with most people, if not everyone, you should find a way to have as minimal anchors in your life, right? We're, we're, programmed as a society. And it's changing now. Like it's definitely changing a little bit in terms of like, you go to college, you get a house, you get married, you have kids, you settle down. It's like, you're throwing all these things and people into the water, right? And it's just an anchor and it's holding you down. It's, It's more difficult to pivot. It's more difficult to actually take advantage of opportunities, right? I'm a true believer in investing in who and what, you know? So if Lane knows my business based on the data we have, and my intuition, I think we can grow 50% year after year. So every dollar we put in the business, it's likely gonna be $2 next year, boom, boom. And the compound effect comes into place, right? And that's, I think a big thing that holds people back from investing in the first place is they never get the experience, they never get the money to be able to do that, but they just don't invest in who and what they know. So if you wanna get in real estate, not saying you shouldn't go buy the property yourself and work with the general contractors and the property management, but the likelihood that you're going to lose money is significantly higher. And this is not to discourage anyone, right? But you love your business and you love your lifestyle. And you know that the likelihood of that growing year after year and not learning how to like buy a property and work with general contractors and how to finance the deal and deal with tenants and all that nonsense. Why not just passively invest? Right. And, and that's, that's where I see. Um, and I've been wrong too. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I've been wrong where it's like, mm, I knew I should have just completely outsourced that versus trying to figure all of that out. Right. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, cause you're so data driven, like you are cross the T's dot the I's. How much, do you believe in like the intuition and frequency and the spiritual realm of things?
1: Um, I mean, I believe there's something to intuition. Um, it's not always right, but I think, you know, we have kind of alarm bells that we probably should listen to. Um, I can say that every time I've ignored alarm bells, it's usually come back to, to bite me in the ass, you know? Um, but we also got to be careful. Sometimes those alarm bells are false warnings um, because of like whatever our childhood was or like, you know, for example, not to point out something you, but like, you know, losing your father at a young age, there was probably certain alarm bells and like personal relationships and whatnot that it was just your, you know, your body's just responding to a situation, but it may not have actually needed that alarm bell, but it's just you kind of protecting yourself, right? So it's kind of it's important to listen to your, your intuition and alarm bells, but it's also important to know when it's like, okay, this is just my body trying to protect me from something. It doesn't really need to protect me from. Right. Um, And I've, I've learned that too, you know, like um, growing up, getting bullied a lot, it was really hard for me to handle criticism. Like uh, even constructive criticism was hard, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I think, but I think part of it, like getting over, it was finding the right mentors and I've always said I've responded really well to the like the firm but fair, right? Like uh, I love people who will absolutely, like if I do something wrong, they have no problem telling me. But then if I do something right, they'll give me all the credit in the world, mm-hmm. right? And so then I have so much trust with that person that, and my COO, Sam and I are like this. Um, Sam, I hired originally as a personal assistant and she basically just kept growing as a person. So now she's our COO. But the first week... She was a personal assistant. She walked in my office and said, "Can I? Is it okay if I give you some feedback?" And like she told me later, she's like, "I was so nervous to tell this to you, but I, I wanted to be authentic." And I said, "Sure." She gave me the feedback, and I was like, "Oh, that's actually really good feedback." You know, like and and I've criticized her before, but we both know. I think we both have this trust that um, if I say something, it's coming from the best possible place if she says something, it's coming from the best possible place. I think when we get in trouble is when we start making assumptions that it's coming from the worst place possible, right? So I I think that's helped. Uh, But getting back to like, you know, like in terms of nutrition and vibration and intuition and stuff, listen, if we were following our intuition, uh, we wouldn't have an obesity crisis, Right? Like, I always say that. like am like, our, your, your intuition will lie to you, okay, when it comes to, like, that sort of thing. Um, and then, like, you hear about, like, well, you got to get on your right vibrational frequency. Okay, what does that mean? How do I objectively measure, me- measure it? And then how do I objectively modify it? If you cannot measure it, if you cannot objectively define it, then it's probably bullshit. And, you know, I tell people, um, people will use, like, really nebulous terms, So a nebulous term is something like, well, this is going to improve your metabolic efficiency. Okay, so if I wanted to measure uh, metabolic efficiency, how would I objectively do that? Like what data would I look at in order to define that? And if you can't tell me that, then I know you're full of shit, okay? And if if a term can mean anything, it means nothing. Mm -hmm. So like that's one thing I do like when people will, because I'll use these terms in videos that sound really good You know, it's like, oh, that sounds really science-y. And then I can come in and be like, I know this person's full of shit because this term means nothing, you know, because it could mean a bunch of different things. What do you think
0: is the most ideal? Because there's a lot out there. There's there's keto, there's plant-based, seed oils are bad. Don't drink soda. Uh, Liver King. (laughs) Like, dude, there's so much. There's so much, but it's probably just because there's like an actual like way to actually see this information now through social media. You're, you're saying over the years, like nothing's changed, Tyler, right? Like this has all been here. It's just coming to the surface now and someone can flex online and, and look nice. And in reality, they're just on steroids. But if, if you had like one piece of advice when it comes to nutrition and training, that anyone and everyone can implement, what would it be?
1: Y'all aren't gonna like this, consistency, do the work. Um, people will say things like, well, you can't eat, lose weight, you can't lose fat eating carbs. How, how, how many millions of examples do we need of people who lost weight while they're eating carbs? And then people say, well, like, then you'll get the, like the, the vegan or plant-based folks say, well, animal products are toxic. How many examples of people do we need that eat like animal products and live to a ripe old age? Like all this stuff, this demonization of different foods and ingredients, it is an attempt to shirk responsibility from the individual. That is the problem. So it's like, oh, oh you're you're not fat and sick because you ate too much. It's because of seed oils or sugar or the no. People are eating too much. I'm sorry, the law of thermodynamics matters. Don't tell me that I can save money by spending more than I earn, because that's bullshit, okay? If you ingest carbons, those carbons have to go somewhere. Okay. They don't just flitter off into oblivion. And if you want to produce carbons, those carbons have to come from somewhere. They don't just come out of nothing. Okay. So, when it comes to the best diet or the best dietary advice, there was a, I'm going to try and simplify this in five minutes as much as I can. If you look at the research data on, like, for example, fat loss diets, because most people, um, you know, I think our obesity rate's almost 50% now, if not higher. Uh, Most people could do with losing some body fat. There was a recent meta-analysis, which is basically they're trying to combine a bunch of different studies into one to come up with a consensus, looking at 14 popular diets. And these diets spanned from low-carb, high-fat, to high-fat, low-carb. And what they found is over a two-year period, there was absolutely very little difference in actual weight loss. There was no significant difference in the amount of weight loss. But then... The researchers looked at, okay, regardless of diet, if we stratify these people into least adherent to most adherent, how does it look then? And wouldn't you know, there is a linear response of fat reduction from people who are the, from the least adherent to the most adherent. So what does that say? Well, it says that the best diet is probably the one you can stick to and be consistent with and actually turn into a lifestyle, Okay. Because if you the diet you're on, if you that way of eating, you can't see yourself doing that for you know six months, a year, two years, you are going to relapse to your previous body weight. I mean that's just how it works, and we see so many people who go on diets, they lose ten pounds, and they put it all back on, or if not more. Um, So it's it's really consistency. That's I mean that was the take home of my book Fat Loss Forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then if you look at people say, what about overall health? Because it's not just fat loss. Kind of. Okay, but if, there was a, a meta analysis in 2014 uh, where they looked at uh, cardiometabolic markers of health uh, between low carb diets, low fat diets, and everything in between. And essentially, what they found was about 80 to 90% of the improvement in the health markers was from the loss of body fat. Uh, even, uh, even taking something like sugar, right? Everybody, sugar is bad. You can't have it if you want to lose fat. And I'm, I'm not encouraging people to eat sugar. I'm just using this to prove prove a point. There was a study in 1997. So we've known this for 25 years now, 1997. And the reason I bring this study up is because it was very well controlled. Um, They provided meals to all the participants. So adherence wasn't an issue. And they looked at if we have people, I think it was like about a 1200 calorie diet. If we have people eat high sugar versus low sugar, but their calories are the same, their protein, carbon, fat intake is the same. What happens with fat loss? What you find in this study is, even though the high sugar group was eating over 110 grams of sugar per day, and the low sugar group was eating about 10, so about a 10 times difference, there was absolutely no difference in the loss of body fat. Both groups lost the same amount of body fat, and. Both groups' health markers improved pretty much the same. The only difference was the group consuming low sugar lowered their LDL just a little bit more than the group consuming high sugar. Both groups lowered it, but the one consuming low sugar lowered it a little bit more. But that was because likely they were eating more fiber, and we know that fiber will decrease LDL cholesterol. Now, I'm not saying that you should eat high sugar because sugar is not very satiating, um, and so these people probably were a little bit more hungry. But even look at, uh, I don't know if you saw the story of Mark Haub, a uh, professor at Kansas State. He did a Twinkie diet. He actually called it the 7 Eleven diet, okay? All processed food, but 1,800 calories. Or just to prove the point that calories matter. So it's all processed food, tons of seed oils, you know, sugar, but he ate enough protein and he ate low enough calories. He did protein shakes and a multivitamin, right? And he lost 27 pounds over 12 weeks and all of his health markers improved. His inflammation, his inflammatory markers went down, his LDL went down, his triglycerides went down, his blood sugar went down, all that. Now, I'm, again, and he said, I'm not saying this diet's a good idea. It was not very filling. Like I, I, by the end, I just wanted to eat a salad. You know, it's like something filling. The point is, you can still eat some of those foods they're not going to kill you. The biggest overall take-home is, just don't eat so damn much. Like I'm sorry, that probably comes across really harsh, but now, like telling somebody, hey, you need to eat less and move more, isn't so helpful because it's eating habits for a reason. Just like telling people, earn more than you spend if you want to save money, isn't necessarily helpful because they're called spending habits for a reason, and that's why one-on-one coaching can help because you can help with habit formation, those sorts of things, accountability. Accountability is a big part of it. But on a crux of a mechanistic fundamental level, if people could reduce their intake, increase their expenditure, they would get way more healthy. And People don't like that. And the reason they don't like that is because there's inherent accountability there and responsibility. One of my favorite quotes, I know he's not popular, real popular right now, but Will Smith said, one of the problems is people want to take fault and responsibility and tie them together. And so they want to say, well, it's this person's fault that this happened to me. And so it should be their responsibility to fix it. Obesity crisis, whose fault is it? it's probably a bunch of different things. People will say food industry, whatever. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. It is your responsibility to fix the problem. Nobody's coming to save you, but you can fix the problem. And I'll, I'll kind of end it with this. Are you familiar with Ethan Suplee? So Ethan, uh, he was in, he's been in a bunch of big movies. He was in Remember the Titans. Oh, yeah. He was in American History X. He's, the, he was in My Name is Earl. He's a really big guy. So Ethan was over 540 pounds. And he says he thinks he was high fives and he just stopped weighing himself. He's about 230 pounds now and pretty jacked. All right. And he's he said it boiled down to making a decision.
0: He went on the liver king diet.
1: (laughs) But he said, he says a phrase, he says, I killed my clone today. And he said, I just had to decide that I was not going to be that person anymore. I heard a quote from Robert Downey Jr. the other day, um, and it was when he was talking about his drug addiction and all this kind of stuff, and he was getting interviewed by Oprah, and he said, it is not that difficult to fix these seemingly ghastly problems in your life. And she's like, it's not that difficult. He said, what's difficult is to decide that you're going to leave that person behind, because if you're going to change that, you have to become a new person. And... So there was actually this systematic review of people who successfully lost weight and what their characteristics were. And the thing that stood out to me, and of course, it's the things you expect, like they self-monitored, they weighed themselves, they practiced some form of cognitive restraint, dietary restraint, it's all, makes sense. But the one that stood out to me that I was surprised by was they said they felt like they had to form a new identity. And when you talk to drug addicts, they say the same thing. They can't hang out with the same people. They can't go to the same places, all that kind of stuff, right? And so these people decided, I am going to be somebody different. I have to be somebody different. And for you to lose a significant amount of weight and it, keep it off, your life is going to have to look different. You cannot construct a new life or a new person while dragging your old habits and behaviors behind you. They will be an anchor and they will drag you back. Okay, so you, it's very painful to leave that stuff behind for a lot of people because you're going to lose friends. Somebody, sometimes your family members are going to give you shit. You're not going to be able to do the same things you did. And most people, they aren't willing to make that sacrifice. I think Eric Thomas said, uh, when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change, that's when we changed. That's when we changed. And I'll, I'll tell one more story and hopefully he doesn't mind me sharing this. So my brother was, was a drug addict mm. and uh, he went to jail for a period of time. And I asked him like, what was it that finally got you clean? Like, what, what, like, was it going to jail? Was that your rock bottom? He said, no. He said, I just woke up one day and I, I decided I got tired of losing. He said, I get a job and I lose it. I get a relationship and I lose it. I get some money and I lose it. And I just decided I wasn't gonna lose anymore. And that's why like these hacks, these all these, I'm not saying none of it works. But on a fundamental level, you have to decide that you are going to be somebody different. And that's really difficult.
0: Boom. That's it right there. That's a, <laughs> mic, that's a mic drop right there. Bro, I appreciate you coming on here, man. You're a fucking legend. Uh, you're a genuine guy. I mean, the moment that you, Thank you. Uh, you walked in uh, and what you do is not easy as far as like putting your, yourself out there and Uh, taking the lashes, if you will, and uh, the background. You get in the arena. You're going to take some punches, baby. Yeah, let's go, man. And you're swinging back. That's for damn sure. I don't know why people would want to come
1: at you, but apparently they want to. Well, if you're going to come at me, I'll still have Dave Ramsey's coat. You're going to come at me, you better pack a lunch.
0: Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Well, it's lunchtime, brother. Let's wrap it up here. Safe travels back home. Appreciate it again, man.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, man.
0: Boom.